0: Welcome to Library Lab, the podcast. James Bridal calls himself a recovering publisher. He used to publish physical books for a living and still does. But in the last few years, as knowledge has moved online and ebooks have become a popular form for text consumption, he began to experiment with the line between the digital and the physical book. His many experiments question what is lost and what is gained when we move our books onto our devices. James now blogs at shorttermmemoryloss.com, where his experiments with physical books are cataloged digitally. David Weinberger recently spoke to James about what he's been working on lately. Just a tiny note about this interview, it was done by Skype from across the Atlantic, so you might notice a few glitches here and there.
1: The real turning point came when I realized quite how easy it was to make a book now through print-on-demand, and you can kind of make anything you want. So I started out making notebooks, uh, which were just printed blank books with some of my favorite sort of classic design on, covers on them. And I started putting things into them like Twitter. So I was the first person to make uh, a book of Twitter a couple of years ago now. Um, it was, it was,
2: you collected all of your tweets over the course of a couple of years and just printed them. And they read a little bit like uh, found poetry.
1: <laughs> that's, that's generous. It's mostly me talking about how hungover I am. Um, but uh, uh, but, but there's,
2: there's poetry in that, so...
1: Well, possibly it confuses people essentially because you've taken this thing that's very transient, supposedly, and very lightweight, and you've put it into this supposedly very important, serious, weighty casing. Um, and that was probably when I started realising that there was real. You could really learn stuff by mucking about with books in this way. Um, and then there've been a number of experiments since then, uh, making um, sort of short-term guidebooks, pulling data down from the internet you kind of create books that are useful for particular places and particular times, um, but are in fact incredibly transient themselves, but which also explore the kind of the physical qualities of the book and why people like to hang on to them and how they become these souvenirs of the experience that we have with them.
2: Another of your projects that, that I just completely love, is the uh, Iraq War Wikipedia uh, encyclopedia that that you did.
1: I've got a particular friend who does, um, as a side project, he does data visualizations for kind of um, uh, Second World War reenactment magazines. They're incredibly beautiful, incredibly detailed uh, drawings of the kind of, you know, the field of fire of various different machine guns as used or the, the thickness of different tanks' armor. And I really like this approach, but what I wanted to see was kind of a visualisation of historiography itself, uh, the kind of changing opinions and and, and thoughts and theories about wars and all other issues over time. We've been talking about that for ages before I kind of hit on this idea of Wikipedia's history, the the changes to every single article, being about as close as you're going to get to a visualisation of an argument in that sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I took the complete changelog history of a single article, the article on the right War, and I printed it out as a 12-volume bound, dense encyclopedia. Um, and, and these were simply
2: the changes in the article. It wasn't a repeat of the article. It was 12 volumes that were simply the items, the lines, the words that were changed in the yeah. article.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. So occasionally, that is the entire article when someone's come along and wiped the entire thing. I, I, throughout that, and that, that covers a kind of six-year period, you can see all these these changes that are happening to it. So it visualizes that argument, but it also gives people just a sense of the vastness of the information.
2: So it seems to me that a lot of what you've done in, in playing with with books is to um, take uh, two media, jam them together, and highlight The, in some ways, the accidental properties of of each. I mean, these are properties that come with the medium that we may not fully intend. And so, one of the properties of of books, for example, is that they've been expensive, and thus they have been assumed to be worthy of the weight. I, I wonder, as you do this, and as you recover as a publisher, and as you think about the future of books. What do you see as a sort of central and continuing value of um, books as uh, in their traditional incarnate form?
3: Books have always been a, a space in which you can think. Um, you know, ebook designers have got obsessed with things like the, the page flip. You know, making it look when you're reading on a Kindle like you're actually turning a page. Um, you know, that's not why people read books. They read books because because there's a whole where there's a whole number of things you can, you can do with them. And um, the, the thing I'm particularly obsessed with is, kind of, is um, marking books up, uh, annotating them, underlining, writing notes in the margins. And one of the problems with ebooks as we've currently designed them is that they kind of repel any interaction with them. Um, it's why I always get bothered when people talk about how uh, uh, e-books in the future will be all interactive, because um, they don't really know what they mean. Um, books have always been interactive, uh, both in the way that we physically interact with them, underlining them, uh, making notes in the margin, dog-earing them, and so on. The, the narrative itself is constructed, shared between the reader and the writer. We kind of animate these things in our heads, and that's the kind of interactivity that the story will always maintain in whatever format it comes in.
2: But there's a type of interactivity that e-books promise that, that traditional books cannot, which is social interaction. So it's yeah, in a conversation you know. between, right, between us and the author, but that's, and it's our marginalia in our book. But um, are we making any progress towards social reading?
3: Yeah, I think there's definitely things starting to happen. I mean, you, you can see it in uh, the most used e-readers. So, you know, Amazon's Kindle has now uh, a function for highlighting that makes it very easy, and you can keep notes. Um, and it, it very slightly extracts those. So if you go to your Kindle webpage, you can see those, those notes and you can share them and I think you can email them now and so on. But it's just the very tip. Where, when it will get really interesting is when you can share those notes sort of any way you like and you can pass them on, uh, and you can create your own reading list and you can even integrate them as well. So the, the obvious sort of canonical example is a, a teacher who marks up a book. And then shares those notes with all his students, who can then import those notes into into their book as well. But but I think what what also is interesting in that, that social reading space is that the the notes uh, that constitute an experience are becoming sep- are are separated from the text. You know, when when you, when you marked up a paper book, they that's pretty much where they stayed. Uh, they were locked into that place. Now they're kind of separated from the work, um, and, and and sort of become start to take on almost a life of their own, which I think is going kind to of be really
2: interesting. So uh, let me ask you about three things that it seems to me that ebooks don't do as well as real books. The, the first is something that you, you've you've done some projects on and have been quite explicit about, which is um, physical books, as you have said, can be souvenirs of, of themselves. Yeah. First of all, can you explain what you mean? And then how might ebooks uh, reproduce that function? So-
3: well, it's a very natural kind of human need to keep some physical record of experiences, whether that's, you know, a, you know, some sort of little chocolate you pick up on your holiday, some little thing, a key fob or whatever that sort of reminds you of something. And what's extraordinary about books is, is that they are, as, as you said, as I said, uh, souvenirs of themselves, in that you, you go on this experience with a book, you spend however long, 8, 10, 12, 15 hours reading this, thing over time, which is a huge investment in the media, you know, it's longer than it takes to listen to an album or to watch a film or any of these things, so they're they're much more deeper and engraved experiences. Um, And then at the end of that, you have this battered book that becomes the souvenir of that, and if you want, and if you're sentimental about such things, as many of us are, you can keep it on the shelf, and you can go back to it, and you can look at it. Because of that quality, that's why physical books have sort of wormed their way into many of our affections so strongly. Um, is is because they have this incredibly powerful secondary use. And we certainly haven't figured out how to do that with e-books yet. And I don't think we've really figured out how to do it with anything. A vast number of our experiences are digital these days. Yet they they, they give us no lasting physical record. And while I'm not just saying that it's an absolute quality of the souvenir, that it has to be physical, I've yet to see anything digital that quite captures that. The only thing that seems to get close is a... It's a different experience, but one that possibly fulfills the same needs, which is the experience of sharing itself. That, that sharing is a, is a form of memory. It's a way we kind of enact an experience and come back to it and maintain it in our minds. So perhaps bookmarks and book experiences will, will start to fill that role instead of the work itself.
2: Books as souvenirs both are souvenirs that we keep for ourselves and we can remember when we read or what we read. But they're also public displays. Uh frequently we make a decision about which books we're gonna put in the in the in our living rooms and which are gonna be uh kept more private. Um yeah. is, is that function also oh difficult to reproduce in the electronic world or easier or does it lose value because it's so easy to publish what it is that you've been reading?
3: Thanks. Experiencing it doesn't seem to have lost value. People seem to... I mean, that seems to be the primary motive, uh, or one of the primary motives for social experiences in, on the web in general, whether it's Twitter or Facebook, any kind of communication type thing. That sort of showing off quality you get with displaying books seems to have been pretty happily extended to everything. We're very, very happy to share on the web what we like, why we like it, all those kind of issues. But the, the, the souvenir memory stuff, I've yet to see a... Uh, Correlation for. but but perhaps it's not necessary in a world where we are constantly being reminded of things in a, in a different way than we are by kind of just physical objects.
2: You did a project where you printed out cubes um, for public display. That is in your in your room or office or whatever of uh, yeah. e-books you had read. What was yeah. that project? There
3: was a there was a little project called Book Cubes, which it was simply that it was um, it, it was using a system that allowed you to produce these little paper cubes very easily. So it was a a system that automatically produced physical objects from pure data, which was my online sort of reading record of e-books that I read. And the idea was that these things would be sort of stand-in souvenirs for these books. But, 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 you know, and they'd they'd show all that information. They'd show the cover of the book. And they'd also show you, you know, uh, how many bookmarks you've made in that book when you started reading it, when you finished it, and, and, and bring that data out of it. Um, which was interesting, but it's not very good. They in no way filled any of the emotional cues that uh, having the actual book there would do. Um, I, I, don't, I don't think you can just print out pictures of stuff, essentially, to make a souvenir of it. It has to be something that's been involved in the process more. I think the data itself might form part of that souvenir, but the uh, little printed paper cubes definitely didn't. But I think it was probably a necessary stage to try and see if they did, um, before working on something better.
2: I think you may have, uh, I think you may be undervaluing it. I wonder how, whether this might actually satisfy some people's needs if offered at a library thing or um, elsewhere. That you know, when you when you're done with the book, you can print out the cube, and the cube can have yeah. a, a QR code, and you can go straight back into the ebook.
3: Yes, yes, but you know, I, I I've already got hundreds of books. In my flat, um, I don't need to start filling it up with little paper cubes as well. Um, it's not a, to me personally as well, it's just not a satisfactory uh, mechanism, really. I, I really, I'm sure there is something else we can, we can do some other way of enacting this stuff, that means that those books are present and and that they're something that you return to, but. And I, 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 it has to be better than just putting stuff on the shelves again because, you know, what I don't go back to most of my books that I have on the shelves. You know, I don't reread them. They do just sit there gathering dust. Um, so if there are other mechanisms for reminding, other mechanisms sort of integrating those experiences into even newer experiences, then through mechanisms like social reading and electronic reading, I think we can approach something a lot better than that, not just
2: trying to reproduce the old experience. Okay, I still like them, yeah. but okay. we'll have to agree to disagree. <laughs> Okay, so something else that ebooks don't do very well, um, which is let you own them. Yeah. You can you can license them. You can do, you know, um, but ownership is difficult. And also ownership may be in uh, the more intimate sense that we have with our books that we've marked up. Is this uh, just a limitation of the e-world?
3: Um, it's a limitation at the moment. of sort of business models and imagination. Really. I mean, I'm hoping that social reading and particularly owning my own experience of social reading, will kind of change that. We may just pacify the fact that, no, we will not own books. And to be honest, what does it really mean to own a digital file that just sits on a hard drive somewhere? Far more important, I think, is to make sure that we own, can archive, uh, have uh, a large degree of control of our own experience of these things. Or, or even my own Twitter account. Uh, it bothers me hugely that... I've spent several years contributing to these things. And yet, a lot of that data is very hard for me to get back. Um, those are my actual experiences. The record of those things does not belong to me. And that's sort of been fine so far because this has all just been mucking about. But, you know, we're kind of 25 years into a, um, or, you know, certainly 15, 20 years into a consumer internet. We're, we're 10 years into really huge numbers of people experiencing this stuff. And we're going to have to start to think a lot more seriously about how we archive and delineate the ownership of those experiences, because they're becoming most of our experiences, and we're sort of starting to leave quite large holes behind us.
2: Yes, and the um, when it comes to the marginalia and uh, highlighting that we do, we want to. It may well be okay to license the content, but we definitely want to own our metadata.
3: Yes, exactly. You know, and, and that 's what 's not really being permitted by most of the ebook stuff at the moment, and i'd really like to see a sort of a customer consumer sort of rebellion on that
2: and a third thing that ebooks um, seem to have trouble doing that and this is a characteristic of physical books that I think is I personally think is absolutely central to them, which is they 're really hard to produce at least before digital printing they're expensive. Objects, and so we needed um, editorial and, and economic systems to uh, handle their scarcity, and this created a, entire regimes of knowledge and authority. Ebooks, uh, you know, you want to go publish on Kindle or iPad, it's getting easier and easier and easier to do that, just automatic filter, post it. Um, the the barrier that physical books presented, ebooks seem not to have, is that something we need? Is that something we're going to see reproduced somehow in the world of ebooks?
3: That barrier kind of falls in several ways, doesn't it? I mean, it's a technical challenge as well. as always been to publish and all But there's also been a reputation barrier and filter. You know, filter is better than barrier. You yeah, know, that, that's been the traditional role of the literary editor, for example, is to, you know, basically make this, these decisions based on taste. So, there's a There's a hurdle of having a certain amount of money in order to produce the books and so on, but there's a you've also got to convince the you know the editor that your thing is worth publishing
2: to the editor it's a filter to the person whose manuscript was rejected it's a barrier but yeah
3: yes absolutely. <laughs> you know. so yeah, I mean obviously we already start to see that breaking down i mean you know, but the only person who's got to worry too surely is large publishing companies, so like, we will always have methods of filtering this stuff ourselves. That filter stroke barrier has only ever served business models that are essentially outdated now. Uh, I have no doubt we will develop filters. I worry slightly more about what what will do for about the poor publishing houses. But um, but I, you know, that's that's what happens when technology has changed and updated. You know, you you can't always mend the business model that's kept it going previously.
2: So, what other reasons are you a recovering publisher?
3: Uh, well, the problem is I'm not a recovering publisher. I still publish books in all sorts of forms. I, I, I think that would be the primary one. It's, it's, it's recognising that there's some aspects of the business that are sort of going to have to be let go. Um, and I think it also includes being a, a recovering reader of a certain kind as well. I have got sort of slightly obsessed with this notion of book guilt, and it, it comes in part and parcel with the fact that we do have so much more to read now. There's so much more out there. We have access to so much more stuff, and it feels like there isn't enough time to read it. And obviously there never has been enough time to read it all. But one of the things that's always really bothered me about books is, is people feel really guilty about not finishing them. They think that they're somehow bad people if they haven't, you know, finished, finished this particular book. Even if it's rubbish, even if they think it's rubbish and it's not a very bad good book and they're enjoying it, uh, they're not enjoying it, then uh, they'll stick with it. And they'll do this to the extent of not starting anything else. This is what really bothers me. So you're, I, you know, I know people who haven't read a book for a year because they got stalled on the last one. And so the way I'm, in which I'm a recovering reader as well as a recovering publisher is made, making much more of a conscious effort to sort of reject that, to just say, you know what, I've got five, six books on the go. If I want to read something else, I'm just going to keep on reading and pick up and drop off wherever it goes. And I think that's a lot easier with eBooks. books um, It doesn't mean that I don't finish the stuff that's really worthwhile, but I think it means I read so much more widely. Um, And I think reading more widely is kind of wonderful. So I'm hoping that 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 is an effect that e-books kind of engender and it means more people will read more books, which can never be a bad thing.
2: Many years ago when I was an academic, the first time that uh, somebody sort of casually uh, assumed that I had read some work that I I definitely should have. I mean it was something – I don't remember what it was. It was something by Hegel or Kant or somebody that I really should have read all of. And I said, no, I haven't read that one. Instead of nodding and desperately trying to think of something to cover my own professional inadequacy, that was a really liberating moment for me. That felt really good. Uh, I I wonder whether that is that moment is going to be more acceptable in a world that – where the barrier to book production is down, where there's so clearly so much more that we can't possibly ever – get to?
3: Yeah, um, the ability to develop a kind of pride in in wider reading, in breadth of knowledge rather than depth. There's always been a kind of a a belief that deep, specific knowledge is is better than broad, wide knowledge. Um, And in certain applications, if you happen to be a nuclear physicist, that is definitely true. But in a broader readership, the the ability to, to range across subjects in a way that we've never done before. Uh, is incredibly exciting. The follow-up to what, what you said is that, you know, no, I haven't read this, but I have read this and this and this and this. And, you know, and there's always going to be some point at which our interests are going to cross because we have such a wider field to explore and
2: in. What are you reading now that you'd like to um, mention?
3: Oh, what am I reading now that I'd like to mention? I would mention, uh, I've just read a novel by H.G. Wells called In the Time of the Comet, which is possibly the greatest novel I've ever read about, about the process of change itself. Um, this, is what, this is not why I read it, but this is what I, I learned from it, which is a. Uh, it's set in sort of 1906, and it's about socialism in large part and about the changes in a political system, but what it describes more beautifully than anything else. A, a, a comet arrived. Everyone is miraculously changed. Um, but what's so striking is, is their attitude to that change after it's happened. The way they can look back and go, how did we ever think otherwise? Obviously, that, you know, the changes that have been wrought are, are for the best, and they're correct, and they're wonderful. Um, but there is no way we could have seen across this barrier beforehand. Uh, and he's just incredibly good at unpacking the sort of human tendency to not be able to even conceive of change in, in, until it's happened. And I'm reading another book at the moment uh, called Together by uh, Henry Hemmings, which is a wonderful exploration of a particular British type of association or willingness to associate and uh, form clubs and hobbies and societies in which he describes sort of every kind of possible community grouping from uh, sort of World War II reenactment groups to uh, book clubs to uh, sort of, uh, animal rights protesters, these gentlemen's Club, and explore the mechanisms in which those communities come together for mutual benefit without any kind of, um, you know, without money or anything like that, but just, uh, just for the simple social pleasures of being together. Um, so those are two that I'd recommend.
2: And you could not have picked two books that were more uh, apropos both to this discussion but also to what, Um, You've been doing so beautifully and occasionally hilariously. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. James Bridle is a publisher, designer, and digital provocateur, and he can be found online at shorttermmemoryloss.com. This is number one in a series of podcasts from the Harvard Library Innovation Lab at Harvard Law School. In the coming months, we'll be interviewing a number of innovators, scholars, and publishers about the future of the book. If you like this episode, why not follow along with us at librarylab.law.harvard.edu, where you can find out more about our work and our guests, join a discussion, and share this podcast with others. This episode was produced by me, Daniel Dennis-Jones, with David Weinberger, with the support of the Harvard Law School.